afternoon, Hope Church. Crack open your Bibles. It's not small, small talk time. It's, uh, it's big talk time. Romans chapter 8. We are going through this magnificent chapter. And what a blessing it has been. I'm, I've been hungry uh, to be back in the pulpit here at Hope Church. And I'm glad to be. I was only, I was only gone for a week. But, but my goodness, I missed it. Romans chapter 8. We've been go- taking the, the marvelous and wonderful journey through the, the effects that the gospel has on simple human souls. We are mere created beings, but we are wrapped up into, we are endowed with amazing eternal glory in this great story that we call, after Paul, the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus Christ. So far, verse 1 and following, we learned I'm justified. As, as somebody who has trusted in Jesus Christ, I have changed status into, before God, somebody who is no longer condemned for sin, but in fact righteous according to God's law. And then we learned that part of the, what God has done for me in my having faith in Jesus, in this whole process we call uh, conversion, there was an element of that which was regeneration. He recreated in me a spiritual nature and brought me to life. And now I have the spirit of the resurrection or the the resurrection power that the Holy Spirit gave to Jesus' dead body to raise him. I've got that in me. That power is resident, not by my own worth or power or abilities, but is resident in me as a present, as a gift of God to all who believe. I also have, verse 12 through 14 told us, the ability to put my sin to death. Won't do it perfectly, but I have in every instance that I need to all the power that I require to put my sin to death. We learned also that all of my suffering is a servant to me. All of my suffering works for me. It's on my staff. It is helping me get a bigger income in glory right? It, it's working up glorious rewards for me in the future, and it's helping me be like Jesus. And the last time in Romans 8, we learned that the Spirit himself helps us to pray in all of our weakness. Let's read tonight's passage. It's going to uh, be verse 28, and we will read to verse 30. <clears throat> and we know that for all those who love God, All things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, He also glorified. Verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? May God bless this word in our midst this evening. Amen. Amen. Sometimes in the Bible, we learn that, 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 that God is gracious enough to let us in on his plan. It's a fact, and maybe you know this from leadership or, or, or other parts of just living life, you know that revealing the plan to subjects, whether it's your children, your employees, maybe a king to his subjects, revealing the plan can bring a lot of peace. Sometimes the worst thing is simply being out of the loop. 
Uh, can you imagine if the first river fire that the Brisbane City Council was ever going to hold, and they'd made all of these amazing plans, there's going to be fireworks, there's going to be a B-52 flying at eye level down the river, there's going to be jet planes soaring through the skyline over the city and, and meters above people's heads right along the river and then dump all their fuel and burn it across Brisbane River before taking off into the sky and taking off to the sunset. And then after dark, there was going to be millions of dollars worth of fireworks explode in the city. Can you imagine, though, if they failed to tell the Brisbane citizens that it was going to happen? And so here's all of Brisbane in an absolute shock, being sure that the rapture is next because the, 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 the planes are coming, the, the fireworks are going off, and everybody is in a complete head spin. Can you imagine if they just didn't tell us? But it literally turns a fear that you're about to die in a million different ways into a great celebration of a great city by simply being told, this is what we're going to do. And it's the same with kids. I, uh, every now and then I have to carry my kids in from the car or, or sometimes from the bed that they're sleeping in uh, to the car because we've got a plan to go somewhere and they wake up halfway through and they're in this jolt and go, where am I? Who's taking me? What's happening? Why is it cold? And they, they're in this, they're like me. They got those genes from me. I wake up swinging if it's not, if I'm not uh, 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 well rested and they're just, ah. And what do I say? It's okay. We're going to the car. Dad's taking me to the beach today. We've got to get up early. It's all right. I've got this. We see this happen in Scripture, that, that God, uh, for example, says in Hebrews chapter 12, he lets you in, you in on his plan. He says, I'm doing all of these horrible things in your life because I'm your father disciplining you. It's okay. And so when literally nothing changes about your life, but simply being let in on the plan helps you rest and say, oh, this is discipline. God's treating me as a son. I'm not being destroyed by the devil and taken to hell I'm being helped. Or Jesus said this to his disciples. He told them uh, in Mark 8 through 9, for example, when he told them the Son of Man is going to go be arrested, spat upon, whipped, scourged, killed, buried, resurrected for salvation. Now, his disciples didn't listen to what he was saying, so it didn't help them. But if they had, they would have been able to see their best friend, their rabbi, the son of man, promised by Daniel, whipped, scourged, thrown on a cross, and they would have been at peace. They would have said, this is literally the plan. But they didn't take a note of it, so they were thrown into distress. And the same thing happens, uh, we've even seen this in Romans 8, earlier on in verse 17. When he says that your suffering is a key part of you getting to heaven, of you going to heaven, of your path to heaven, and we say, oh, I, I thought that all of my suffering was an evidence that God hated me still, and that I must still be condemned under my sin, because look at all the bad things happening. So, so, if, so if suffering is actually God getting me to heaven, I'm okay, I'll, I'll rest in this. And so also he does this in Romans 8, 28 and tw uh, sorry, 29 and 30, which are our key verses for tonight. This is what God is doing. He's telling you like a, like a child waking up in the middle of his task. You're waking up and going, what's happening? Why is all this occurring to me? Where are we? And he's saying, hey, I've, I've got a plan. You're a little part of it. You just got to rest in dad's arms. That's what it's like. A part of what Paul tells us today is, is stuff that God did before we even existed. 
Foreknowledge, predestination. He's, that's when he's, he's planned the day out. He knows where the family's going. And then he, he, he's carrying us. And then your conversion is like when the kid wakes up in the arms. right? And the dad can go, you've been asleep for half of my plan. You, you, it doesn't rely on you. You're not that big of a deal. Just relax. How, how peaceful is it? How, how assuring is it? Securing is it to realize that's you? All of our tossing and turning in the, in the Christian life and our worry about what's happening and will I make it to the end, God's saying, you aren't even existent for most of what I've been doing, okay? You just woke up at conversion. I, I've already predestined and foreknown you. Just rest in my arms. I'm taking you to a glorious end of conformity to my son and glory. That's what God, God is doing here. In Romans 8, look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined to what? Well, to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed why? Well, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is what we can call the grand overarching purpose of everything. The ultimate purpose for everything, or the ultimate purpose for existence, or the ultimate purpose for the gospel, or the ultimate purpose for the cross of Jesus, the ultimate purpose for the suffering of the Messiah was this, that Jesus might have many with him that look like him in the future. And that is the ultimate purpose that verse 28 was talking about. So look back at verse 28. We know that for those who love God... All things work together for good. Well, who defines good? Do I get to define good, whatever I think is good, like a Mercedes-Benz or a tremendous Bayside house if I sow into certain ministries, certain amount of money? Do I get to define good, pleasure, ease? No. God defines good. He defines good in a most mind-numbing, amazing way. Here's the good that God defines, your good, your highest good, which everything is working towards for those who are called according to his purpose. The purpose, which, which we were defining before. The thing that everything is working towards is your good. The, the fulfillment of God's purpose. And what's that purpose? That you will one day be just like Jesus. That's an amazing thing. Sometimes in the, the New Testament, in, in the Bible, we, we, uh, and, and in speaking of it, we can talk of the gospel in really zoomed-in senses, and that's absolutely important. We did that back when we were talking about Romans 8, verse 1 to 3. That was, that was uh, when we were talking about the mechanics of the atonement. Right? How does a man dying on a cross and bleeding exact and effect the salvation of billions of souls into a a glorious resurrected world. What's the maths there? Well, Romans 8, 1 was telling us. Or, or Romans 3, 21 through 26 also tells us. A really zoomed in view of the gospel is, here's how sins are forgiven by Jesus absorbing the wrath of God. That's the gospel. Jesus died for you. If you believe that, you will be saved, forgiven, and accepted into God's family. Believe that, friends. The gospel zoomed in is that your sins can be forgiven, that you can have eternal life. The gospel zoomed in is that all of your failures, all of your, the, the, those, those acts of rebellion against God, which currently hang over you to destroy you, or you may feel as if they're on your back, pressing you down into hell. Whatever it may be, the good news of the gospel zoomed in is that Jesus can take all of that away because by his death, 
he died to sin. By his death, he died for you and in your place, the punishment you deserved. That's the gospel. Believe it. But the New Testament also gives us a zoomed out view of the gospel. And that's the language of Romans uh, 8.28. When he starts saying uh, the gospel, he doesn't say it like this, but we we could summarize it like this. The gospel is that you are going to be made like Jesus. Or we could say the gospel is that God is in the process of making you like Jesus. That, 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 that's one way we could summarize the gospel. It's not, it's not really how we would present it as a, to an unbeliever in order for them to be, believe. But, but as Christians, we can, having come into the kingdom, we can start taking some steps back and put these verses together and realize this is so much more than just my sins being forgiven. It's not less than that. It can never be anything less than my sins being forgiven. That is absolutely essential, my faith in Jesus. But when we see, like, like we peer through the, through the hole, through the keyhole of what it means to be forgiven, and what we see on the other side is, I'm being conformed into the image of him who perfectly images God in human flesh, that is Jesus. So there's this cosmic, glorious uh, uh, ultimate purpose, plan of redemption style uh, uh, way of thinking of the gospel. And in this verse alone, he goes, he like stretches our mind all the way to eternity past before time existed. And then all the way to the future after this world's wrapped up and glory has kicked in. So this is a, this is a broad view of the gospel. And his ultimate point is to secure and assure Christians in the question of how how permanent is my salvation? Because every amazing thing that we've talked about so far in the gospel, in Romans chapter 8, immediately loses its, its polish and its shine, or to me, any of its relevance whatsoever, if there is something, anything at all, that can undo it. Because if I'm a fearful Christian, and if I'm a a fearful person, if I'm honest about this world, there is an amazing amount of things that are stronger than me. There's a lot of people smarter than me. There's a lot of sin that that has more enticing power than I have self-control. There is nothing good about the gospel if it's all based on a maybe. There's, There's no greatness of Romans 8 so far if everything can be undone because I wake up in a wrong mood. Or I stayed in a state of of calloused unrepentance for just one day too long. I can lose this. It's not good news. But this is the good news that Paul is taking the believer by, by the hand or maybe by the scruff of the neck and saying, it is impossible that this ever ends. Salvation is primarily a work of God. And therefore, the things that he then goes and explains in verse uh, uh, 29 and 30 is just stuff that God does. He doesn't say anything that you do. He doesn't say you believed, though you did. He doesn't say that you made effort to understand the word of God and and set yourself to the disciplines of grace and of church attendance and and putting aside sin and and surrounding yourselves with godly people and honoring God in your work and and bringing your family in a way that is is, uh, ordered by the Bible and giving praise to God and and bringing confession to other people and praying with others and, and losing sleep so that you might pray even more. It's not saying that you don't do any of that. 
None of that, though, is in this passage. The things in this passage are the stuff God does. Theologically, and in the confessions like London Baptist and Westminster, they call this the acts of God. The acts of God. And that is distinguished from the works of God. So, so, so the works of God are those things that he does and keeps on doing. The acts of God are things that he does in a moment and it remains as is forever. So, so let's, let's look at some of these. Some of them in verse 29 are things that God does before time. Some of these things in verse 30 are things that he does in time. None of these things are things that you or I do. Let's look, verse 29. It says, God, sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Uh, We see in this phrase, he does not say what he foreknew. It's not that God is looking down the corridor of time and he sees things happen, or he sees a state of heart, or he sees occurrences or instances or things, and then, and then that would lead us to conclude that therefore foreknowledge is merely him understanding or being aware of something before it happens. Of course God has awareness of things before they happen. But it doesn't say that. It just says those whom he foreknew. That is to say that he is not foreseeing that you were a good person or you had faith or you went to church or any of that. He's foreseeing people. However, even deeper than that, it is not merely that he is seeing something beforehand, as if the great mystery of Romans 8 that I'm unveiling to you today is that God knew you were going to exist. Wow, look at that. Isn't that an amazing, uh, assuring promise? Not at all. He's God. Of course he knew you existed. The, the, The assuring promise of Paul here is that God loved you affectionately and chose you in relationship before you existed. Now that might sound like a whole bunch of eisegesis. I've just got this idea because I'm a Calvinist. I'm going to shove it into that passage. But that's not the case. The, the, The knowledge that God here is speaking of is a distinguishing, particular, peculiar, exclusive knowledge. Because he's saying, those whom he foreknew. So he's speaking of people who were foreknown, and he's going to go on to say that these are the people who go to heaven. So this foreknowledge is, by necessity, something that is not universal. Of course God knows that everyone would exist, and he knows everybody who will exist, but that's not what he's talking about here. There is a sense in which God knows the righteous, God knows the the Christians, God knows those who he will save, in a way that before time He did not, and even now he does not, and after death he will not know the unbelievers. What sense is that? Let me give you a few examples. In both Hebrew and Greek uh, parts of the Bible, that is Old Testament and New Testament, the the language of know does not just uh, uh, denote God's God's factual knowledge about something, but rather it, it can mean that, but other times it can also mean especially when it's in the relationship of of persons, it means his deep relational affection. For example, in Genesis 4 verse 1, it tells us that Adam knew his wife. Every husband knows his wife. He'll at least know her name. Like, however, 
organized marriage culture you might be from, you'll probably at least know a name, not what Adam's talking about, not what God is talking about in the activity of Adam, because it says, he knew his wife and she conceived a baby. That's pretty deep mind knowledge. No, that's, that's knowing that in the Hebrew denotes a lot more than mere mental faculty. He, he knows deeply and intimately his wife, and then she conceives a baby. Or in Genesis 18, verse 19, this one's about God. He says, I have known Abraham so that his children may, etc., etc., you know, fulfill the covenant. Well, well, God knows everybody. Does that mean everybody's children is wrapped up into God's covenantal purposes? No. In fact, in your English Bible, probably Genesis 18, 19 is translated, I have chosen Abraham. Because that's what that word can mean in the Hebrew. I knew you beforehand. I chose you. Or in Exodus chapter 2, verse 25, when, when it says that God looks down and sees the suffering of the uh, Israelites in slavery, and it says God saw and he knew. Well, he knows everything. He, he already knew that they were there. In what sense? That is the sense, rather, that he's saying, I am choosing to interact and act in this moment. It's deeper than mere knowledge. It's a decided choice of relationship. In Psalm 1 verse 6, it tells us that God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, if you think that know in that sense merely means God knows about, then, then first of all, the sentence doesn't make sense, and it's wrong. Because if I said to you, you know, God knows about the way of the righteous, but, but the unrighteous, they perish. You know, well, they're, they're not even opposites. God can know about me and me still perish. But that's not the, the, the parallelism. It's, an, it's a reflective sort of a, a opposite, a, a parallel uh, sentence. He's saying God knows the, the, the way of the righteous and he doesn't know the way of the unrighteous. Another way you could say that is the righteous thrive, the unrighteous perish. Because he knows the righteous. But does God not know the way of the unrighteous? Of course he does. Not in the same relational sense that he knows the righteous. Same in a 100, Psalm 144, verse 3. Jeremiah 1, verse 5. I formed you in the womb. I appointed you, consecrated you, and knew you before you were in the womb. So, so, so this biblical idea of knowledge is a lot deeper than merely, merely him knowing about. Paul is not saying God knew about you or knew about facts and then did anything, but rather we can say it is that God chose to set his relational love upon you before time. This is sometimes called sovereign election, unconditional choosing on God's part. Here's what Murray says, John Murray. He says, it is not foresight of something different, Paul is talking about, but the full knowledge that makes the difference to exist. It is not a foresight that recognizes existence, but the knowledge that determines existence. So foreknowledge then is a sovereign, distinguishing love. In other words, what he's saying is God doesn't, God doesn't notice a difference. He makes the difference. God doesn't see and then notice a distinction between people. He loves and therefore makes a distinction between people. He doesn't see a choice and recognize it. 
He makes a choice and takes people as his own. Before you were ever created, before your grandparents were ever created, before Adam was ever created, God had chosen in his love those that he would put his love upon, those that he would put into Christ, those that he would save, and those he would take to glory. The foreknowledge of God is a choosing relational love. And then he did something else. So he foreknew them in that he loved them beforehand. And then it says he predestined. He also predestined. Some of you are like, what? I thought Calvin made up that word. It's in the Bible. It's right there. And you know what it means? It means to destine something beforehand. It means predestined. In the Greek, it doesn't mean free will. It means predestined. That's what it means. So those that he had known beforehand and decided to love sovereignly, he also predestined. That is, he set up a destination for them to go to. That's what, that's what it means. And then we can say, well, what's the destination? How would you answer that? Maybe some of you would answer that by saying, well, the destination he made for us is heaven. Wrong. The destination God set us to is, is, is the new heaven and earth. Wrong. Uh, the destination he set us to is, is salvation. Nah, no, no, no. The destination that he set for you before he ever created anything, all those he had chosen, he set a destination for you. And the final goal, his ultimate destination, is that those chosen would look like, act like, breathe like, worship like, smell like, be like his son. And since his son is the perfect embodiment of who he is, he was making us for an ultimate purpose to be restored and created and glorified into his own perfect image. That's what God was doing. He chose and planned in predestination to make us like himself, but since it is impossible for us to be just like him because he's a spirit without body parts or passions, therefore he made himself one of us so that he might make all of us just like him. He became one of us in the incarnation so that we might have something to be made like. And that then is literally the purpose of everything. When you get resurrected in the future, what we've been calling glorification, that's you becoming like Jesus down to your every cell. Your every impulse and thought will be perfectly like Jesus. But even coming back a step, When your body expires in this life and you go to heaven, that's another step that you've taken before glory, but that's a step that you'll take to be more like Jesus. You'll be away from sin, not having any sin about you. That'll be a way that you're being made more like Jesus. Or take it back in the life a little bit and and you're living and and you're suffering. That's God conforming you to the image of Jesus. Or or when you're being sanctified and putting aside sin and you're trying to obey God's law, that's God making you into the likeness of Jesus. Or or at your regeneration, when you were a sinner lost in your ways and apart from God and condemned under his law, and then he made your heart new and you saw Christ for the first time as the savior of your soul, that was God conforming you to the image of Jesus in the very first step. Conformity to Jesus is the most glorious, glorious gift that our God could have ever given to us. That is why he became the God-man. That is why he died. 
That is why he bled. That is why he was buried. That is why he resurrected. That is why he now rules and reigns. That is why the Spirit was sent. That is why everything. The why to everything is so that God gets glory by making former sinners look just like his son. And this is, this is the motivation. Look at the end of verse 29. In order that God is going to make you like Jesus, in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, you can't be the firstborn if you're the only born. You're not the older brother if you're the, if you're the only son. If you're the only child, you're not both the older and the younger kid. You're not a middle child. You don't get to claim middle child suffrage and all of that if, if you're the only, right? Because you're the only. And here was the promise of God to the son. You go, you take their sin, you die in their place. I will rise you up and give to you a glorious congregation of brothers. That was God's promise. We see it in the Old Testament. We, we see this as Jesus' motivation in Isaiah 53. He looked through and saw the many sinners that he would make righteous. Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 16, about the, 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 the resurrection, he says, I am looking forward for uh, the, the righteous in the land. In them is all my delight. Why did Jesus go through the cross? Hebrews 12 tells us, to scorn its shame because the joy set before him was so blazingly glorious. What was the joy? that his people might be brought to him and then be made like him. This is the why to everything. So that Jesus would get glory as the oldest son in an innumerable family. We, will all, we are all in the status of siblings of God, siblings of Jesus rather, children of God, and we are being made more and more like our older brother Jesus. So before time, God for knew you, he chose you before time. And then he predestined you to that glorious end and plan. And then look at what he does in time, in verse 30. And these are the things of actually bringing to fruition in your life what he is planning. Verse 30. And those whom he predestined, he also, in time, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. These are the, this is not everything God does to us in our life, but these are, these are three important steps. That, that while you are lost in your sin, it says, those whom he predestined, he called. This is not the, we distinguish between the external and the internal call. Or the outward call and the, the effectual call. The, the general call and the saving call. That, that everybody sitting here is hearing my voice say, come to Jesus, be saved, leave your sin and cling to him. But, and this is the great tragedy, there are still some sitting here who will not come and have not come. You refuse to come and you still sit dead in your sin and calloused of your ears and, and it makes no interest to you to, to come to Jesus. Until the day that God has appointed when you will. And I pray it's tonight. You don't get to rest in any excuses to not come until he makes you. But the fact is that God has your number. And he will take you when he wants. He will use my voice maybe. Use another evangelist or somebody else's preaching and, and praying. But at some point, you will be ejected out of your unsaved state. That's the best way I can explain it. You just, your mind explodes your, your heart is raptured with joy in Christ, and at some point you come to the conclusion, 
I trust Jesus now. I don't like my sin as much anymore. I want to know the Bible. What happened to me? God, the same way he called things into existence at creation, he called your heart into new life in the new creation. That's his call, the powerful internal call. And then all those who he calls are justified. So here's the question. Well, how do I know that maybe I was predestined and, and maybe, maybe God did call me, but I said no. I hate my sin. Maybe my sinful heart said no. And, and the father looks at you and says, oh, I, I didn't ask your permission. That, that wasn't how this, this quite worked out. When I called you, what I did was I made you willing. If he called you, then what he did was he didn't break your will. He gave you a new will. And you loved to choose Jesus. Of course you chose Jesus. All this free will debate, of course you chose Jesus. It's just that you chose Jesus because he first changed your heart. And, and therefore you had faith. And what does those, what is given to those who have faith in Christ? Romans 8.1, no condemnation, justification. All those who he calls up out of the mire and the clay and the mud of sin, he gives a faithful heart to that, that believes Jesus. And then he stamps them with righteous. Here's what John, uh, Matthew Henry says. All that are effectually called, that's the technical name, the called out of death into life. All that are effectually called are justified. All. They are absolved from guilt and accepted as righteous through Jesus Christ. They are recti in curia, which is Latin for right in court. No sin that they have ever been guilty of shall come against them to condemn them. Wow, no sin they have ever, I think we, we get used to hearing this because we're evangelicals. Let me say it again. No sin that they have ever been guilty of shall come against them to condemn them. The book is crossed. The bond is canceled. The judgment vacated. The attainder reversed. And they are no longer dealt with as criminal, criminals, but owned and loved as friends and favorites. Blessed is the man whose iniquity is thus forgiven. God justified you. And then it says, those who are justified, he also glorified. And this is what we spent so much time looking at previous uh, parts of the chapter, that glory is that final step and that final stage. Some of us will be on earth, some of us will be in heaven, but it's when we all get our glorified bodies, just like Jesus' resurrection body. We'll, we'll, we'll be resurrected into the, the body that will last forever and be able to to not burn up into ashes looking at Jesus face to face. Bodies that can withstand glory, bodies that will never pass away with the, the, the passing of time, the, the eternity of days will keep on passing and we will never age. We will never break down. That's glory. In the, in the, in the new heavens and in the new earth where Jesus is the source of light and all joy, that's glory. But, but the argument that Paul is making here is how all of these people belong to the self-same group. So you can never be, therefore, somebody who is pre uh, foreknown, but then God left you aside in this whole predestining you to be like Jesus' plan. No? Everyone foreknown was predestined to this purpose. Verse 30 then says, And everyone, or, or those, whom he predestined, he also called. So there's no one that God elected and chose to give this glorious inheritance to that he fails like some kind of failure. 
in time to call out of sin. Now, God is a sovereign, powerful, loving, effective God. He, he accomplishes the salvation he plans to. Every predestined person gets called into life. And everyone who gets called gets justified. Everyone. He doesn't call you out, give you the option, and return to sender back to Satan if you don't wish. Everybody he calls in this sense is justified. And then the great question of tonight's passage, how, how permanent is my salvation? The spirit with me, my new, my new, my new existence in the spiritual realm, my, my, my new power against sin, my, my justified status, my adoption. How permanent is this, Paul? And he says, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. And you go, yeah, okay, but I'm asking about the suffering, the praying, the sin, the sanctification, the dying. I'm asking about all the things in between. And Paul's going, you don't get it. He just picked up the two sides of the blanket and zip-tied them together. Everything in between is included. If he has justified you, he, as far as God's concerned, from his perspective, you're glorified. Like, the stamp is sealed. The deal is done. You are sealed up into it. Do you know why? Because in one sense, I could say, you're already glorified. Your glorification, Christian, has already begun. Now, not in your body. Don't, this is no heal. No, don't start looking for the bits that have been perfected. I don't, it's not that. It's, it's that if Jesus is your older brother, if you are in him, then if he's glorified, you're glorified. You just haven't been glorified yet. You haven't tasted it yet. It hasn't been applied to you yet, but you're there. You're up there with Jesus. You're in his wounds. You're before the face of the Father. You're already in the new heavens and the new earth. If we could say that you're glorified so certainly that it doesn't even matter that you're still in this body. For us, existence and experience determines realities. For God, his, his truth, his knowledge, his promises, his purposes determine reality. So, so if you're in Christ Jesus by faith, then, then it is as certain that you are glor will be glorified than if you were already glorified. I love that, that old hymn. I, I hope the words can come back to my mind as, as the hymn just came to my memory. And it says that those saints who are in heaven are more happy but not more secure than us. Isn't that amazing? Like you think, if he could just kill me really soon, then I'll be sure I'll be in glory. No, 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 no. Those people around the throne of Jesus right now who see him face to face, who are praising God with the billions of angels, they are not more secure in salvation than you because God has both of us in his hands. God has every class. The, the ones not even born yet, the ones currently struggling with sin, and the ones already in heaven. We're all in the same group of people who are foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's certain. But, that, but that's the one condition and the one question then. Have you had faith in Christ? Now, if you're a worrying Christian, you might hear me saying, are you someone who has lots of faith in Christ? And that's not what I said. You might hear me say, are you someone who's really proving it to everybody around that you're a growing Christian? Not what I said. Not what I said at all. You might hear me say, are you absolutely certain that your faith is the kind of faith that can get you to heaven? Not what I'm asking. 
I'm saying when I say Jesus is God in flesh, died for human sin, absorbing God's wrath, resurrected into new life, ascended into heaven, and he stands there calling people to believe in him. Does your heart reject that? Or do you look at that and say, yes, I, I, I want that. Have you called on the name of the Lord? That's all. Not how, how articulate was your call, how powerful was your call. It, that's not it. It is, do you look at Christ and believe? That is the only condition. That's faith. Not, not, not powerful faith, just mere faith. A, a tiny, thin wire can, can still transport an immense amount of power. You don't need some huge wire in order to get, get electricity across a gap. The, the smallest will do to some degree. And, and it's the same with faith. A weak faith, Spurgeon used to say, a weak faith can lay hold of a strong Christ. It's not your hold of him that saves, but his hold of you. Do you have faith? And now to people who, who know yourself as unbelievers. You're not trusting him. You don't believe him. You don't rely on him. Every promise in Scripture is held away from you. Every curse of God is given to you, hangs over you, and it, 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 it threatens you with an unimaginable, unending torment in hell. And the only thing you must do to escape all of it is trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in Him, and you will have conformity to Him and an eternal promise of life. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful that salvation is not dependent on us. It is not conditional on us. It is a work of God given to us. We praise you, Lord God, for the reassurance. There is, there is much in your book, in your Bible, that, that you command us to do. There is much that we need to do in order to grow. There's, there's much that we need to do in order to be, to be focused and productive and effective Christians and to give you glory. All that is true. But what is even more true, what is more foundational, more fundamental, more glorious and immovable, is that while all those things will go up and down, the ultimate promise and purpose in your salvation shall never be shaken. That those who trust in you now are doing so because you chose to love them. And that those who trust in you now, no matter how weak or, 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 or frail they feel their belief to be, they have an a secure, they have an, an unshaken, they have an absolute permanent and promised eternal life beyond the grave. And the, those who are there are no more secure in it than we are, though, Lord, they are more happy. We ask that they would not be more sure. Would you give to us an, an unworldly, an in, incomparable, an unexplainable assurance born by the Spirit in the depths of our hearts that we are your children, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and heirs with Jesus Christ, with glory awaiting. Lord, save some tonight, and assure the rest. Please leave no one going out of here, not knowing where they will go when they die. We know not how long we have on this earth. We pray all of these things in the beautiful and glorious saving name, the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved, the name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. 
If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.